The following audio has been brought to you by Word of Grace Community Church. For more information about Word of Grace, visit wogcc.com. Today we're going to go through Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at the whole thing in context, so if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter 18, because that's pretty much where we're going to hang out uh, all morning long. Matthew 18, which is really the Christian's uh, go-to manual on how to deal with the fences and how to find healing from wounds. And it doesn't matter what kind of wounds that you may be dealing with or facing. It doesn't matter if they're uh, past relationship, friendships, family, or church wounds. I believe that Matthew 18 is a gift to us from the Holy Spirit of God to help us to know how to navigate these circumstances. And we want to look at the whole thing. Normally when I've taught in the past on forgiveness or reconciliation, I've always taught on uh, the 15th uh, verse and just kind of go down through that section where Jesus gives the, some more practical steps. But I want us to look at the whole of Matthew 18 and see exactly what all is being said. I think it's going to help us a lot to go through that. So let's start off with the first five verses here. Matthew 18, let's look at verse 1. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now just picture this for a moment. The disciples are asking Jesus, who's the greatest? And if they're asking that question, that means in their minds they've already got an answer. They already know who they think is the greatest. They're not really looking for Jesus to answer this question as much as they are looking for affirmation from what they already think. And if you look at you know, patterns, my guess would be that Peter is kind of spearheading this conversation out of all the disciples, that Peter is really wanting to hear he's the best, and he's wanting to hear that he's the guy. He doesn't really want to know who's the greatest, because what if Jesus said someone else? No, he's really wanting to hear you're the man, or whoever the case may be that was asking. And I think that when they came to him asking this question, Jesus, he's just dumbfounded and says, listen, guys, this is the wrong question. You, this is not the question you should be asking. If you want to be great in my kingdom, he comes, has a child come to him. He says, be like this child. This child, take, take and understand that this child is, is in a position where they have to uh, automatically be humbled just by the fact that they're smaller. They're humbled automatically by the fact that they are dependent upon another. They're dependent upon a parent or an authority figure to provide for them, to take care of them, to give them everything that they need. They really aren't self-sufficient. They're not going out doing their own thing. They require a certain degree of dependence. If you want to be great, you need to actually be dependent upon the authority of Christ. You need to be dependent upon who He is. And He's trying to illustrate this to them. It's not about who's the greatest. If you want to be great in my kingdom, humble, your, humble yourself and be like this child. Romans 12 and 3, the apostle Paul echoes something very similar where he says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He said, listen guys, don't think more highly of yourself than you should. And that's where we get into trouble. That's really where we start messing up is when we start thinking of ourselves more highly than we should. And I think that one of the first practical pieces when we look at growing through offense is we need to remember who is really in charge. A child understands they're not the authority in the room. A child understands that I have to depend on another. And the question that this should bring us to to make us face, is God really in charge of our life. Because when we begin to think higher of ourselves than we should, we make bad decisions. We think we're smarter than someone. We think we're more spiritual than someone. We think more highly of ourselves than we should. We think we're right all the time. We think we've got all the answers. We think we're just the person that's got it all figured out. And when we look at ourselves that way and we think of ourselves that way more higher than we should, we begin to hurt other people. We hurt other people with our actions, with our inactions, because our head is thinking, I am better than this person. 
That's exactly the same question that the disciples were asking Jesus. They said, hey, who's the greatest out of this whole deal here? They were thinking more highly of themselves than they should. And Jesus says, look at this child. Look at the humility of this child. If you want to be great, be like this child. Um, You know, I, I think that so many times when we think higher of ourselves, we're led to gossip, we're led to hurt other people, we forget our role. We forget that it's not us that's in charge. It's less of us and more of him. Amen, somebody? Matthew chapter 18, let's pick it back up in verse 6 and keep reading this. He's still talking about this child here that he's using as an illustration that's been pulled from the crowd. Verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Whoa. That's pretty heavy. So in this instance, Jesus is switching gears now, and he's still talking about humility. He's still talking about being childlike, but he's letting them know when you think high of yourselves and you should, you can become a stumbling block for other people. You can can become a stumbling block of offense that causes other people to actually sin by your sin. He said, if you're going to do that, especially to one of these little ones, these innocent ones, these ones that are already submitted to the authority figure, the ones who are innocent, these, this child, then, man, it would be better for you if a millstone was tied around your neck and you're drowned into the sea. Verse 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one who whom the temptation comes. And if your hand causes uh, or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter into life crippled or lame than with two hands uh, or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the one, uh, he rejoices over the one more than the ninety-nine who never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And Jesus packs so much into just a few verses that we read here, but the heart of what we see behind what Jesus is saying is that people matter to God. Therefore, if people matter to God, they should matter to us. We should not want to be that stumbling block that causes someone else to sin. We should not be the source, is what Jesus is saying. We should not be the source of the gossip. We should not be the source of the negativity. We should not be the source of the anger that spreads around. We should not be the one who stirs anger up in other people. And Jesus was telling his disciples that when you think higher of yourselves than you should, you not only sin, but you potentially cause other people to sin. And he wanted to attach weight to that. He wanted to give weight to the responsibility we have as followers of Christ to remind us that in God's value system, in God's economy, every person matters. Even the lost sheep, even the one who offended you and caused you pain. They matter to God and he'll go after them and seek after them to bring them back. So it's not just those who stayed in the pen. We're proud of the fact that we stayed in the pen. Well, I didn't go do that thing that that person did. I stayed in the pen like a good sheepy. (laughs) And he said, yeah, good for you. But he actually leaves those 99 to go after the one and rejoices over finding a lost one more so than those that stayed in the pen. So if you're staying in the pen, good, but don't pat yourself on the back because you're staying in the pen. Don't think more highly of yourself than you should. That's what we do, especially in church. We begin to think, oh, well, I didn't do what so-and-so did. At least I didn't do this or do that. And we begin to cast judgment on other people and wound other people and hurt other people because we stayed in the pen. And someone might have wandered outside the pen and we get all judgmental and critical and we hurt people. And Jesus said, I rejoice more over the one that was lost that I went out and found him, brought him back. I'm actually more excited about that than I am the fact that you 99 all stayed put but we want to know who's the greatest 
We want to say, who's the greatest one of us that stayed in the pen? Which one of us buys the best? (laughs) Which one of us looks the best? Which one of us is the most spiritual? Which one of us did all the things we were supposed to do the best? Jesus said, actually, you want to know what really matters to me? I get more excited about the one that was lost that wandered out of the pen that I brought back. If you want to know what's really important to me, if you really want to know what the kingdom of heaven values, the kingdom of heaven actually values that. And he's trying to communicate something to us because it's so easy for us to fall into the temptation of thinking higher of ourselves than we should. And we get critical, we get judgmental, we create stumbling blocks of offense for other people. We will make other people mad about stuff they weren't even aware existed. And Jesus said, don't do that. You're creating a stumbling block. I think that oftentimes you all scroll through Facebook feed on the news feed and I'll find something new to be upset about that I didn't even know I should be upset about that. Thank you for letting me know that this country I've never even heard of did this thing to these people. Oh my goodness, that's terrible. I'm angry. Something, somebody needs to do something about this. We get all upset about stuff, and then we go and we share that stuff with other people so they can be upset along with us. My wife and I realized something over the past few weeks. We realized that a lot of our conversation was just turning real negative, just about anything. It didn't matter if it was our internet service. <laughs> it doesn't, I mean, because, I mean, come on. <laughs> our internet service, doesn't matter if it was uh, waiting in a, in a line at a restaurant or didn't matter if it was just other people that were frustrating us, we were just having a lot of negative conversation, and it was really affecting our marriage, and we had to just kind of put a stop to this thing, and we had to say, hey, I feel like we're really being negative lately, like just, it just, oh, so heavy when there's just so much negativity, and so I told my wife this, I said, why don't we, why don't we take a different stance on the way that we're having these conversations, because we're just talking about this or that, just I said, if it's something that we need to make a decision on, there may be some negative conversation that has to happen. Because sometimes when you're being led to make a decision, you have to talk about hard things, and you have to bring out the cold, hard facts, right? So if we're discussing something, yeah, and there needs to be a decision made, and if we have the authority and the power to do something about it, let's explore all options, and let's not, let's not leave anything on the table so we can make the best decision, or we can do the thing we need to do to correct the situation. However, however, on the flip side of that, if it's something that we're not really being asked our opinion on and we're not making any decision, if we start to go down that negative path, let's hold each other accountable and let's just put a stop to it and say, hey, let's stay away from this negative talk because at the end of the day, I can't make a decision based on this information. It's just more negative information coming out of my mouth, coming in my head, getting in my heart, creating hardness in my heart, opinions in my heart, way I may treat someone else, way I may treat my wife, we may get short with uh, one another, whatever the case may be, because there's just so much negativity. So if I can't do anything about it, let's not just talk for talking's sake about negative things. That's a fun thing to do with your wife. (laughs) And especially when it's time to hold one another accountable. But she started doing that, and I started doing that with her. When the conversation would drift off into something, she told me just yesterday, we were sitting in bed as we woke up and just kind of talking about the day, and then conversation drifted over into something negative, and she said, can you do anything about that? And I said, no, no, (laughs) ma'am. And and she said, well, you remember what we agreed to do. If we can't do anything about it, why aren't we just hashing this situation out. It, it, what good is it doing? If, is there a decision that needs to be made regarding this? No, there's not really a decision that needs to be made regarding this. Just, well, we're just talking negatively then. That's not a good way to start our day. Okay. And I've had to do that with her too. And so that's something that we've begun doing, and maybe that's something that you and your spouse could do. I don't know, just throwing that out there. But it's something that has really helped us to raise our accountability level to not just sit in negativity. It's exhausting. If all you talk about is why another person is not doing something that you have no business or no power or no ability to try to help them with, it'd be different if you were trying to make a decision whether or not to go to this person to try to help them. But if you're just talking, you're setting up stumbling blocks. Are you understanding what I'm saying today? Understanding what Jesus was trying to say? He said, listen, this is a dangerous thing you're playing with. He said, especially if it's something that 
causes a little one to sin. And I think that Jesus is really trying to help us to see that we as parents need to be careful not to allow our homes to be homes of negativity. Because if we do, where we're just always gossiping and neg- being negative around our children, we're creating a stumbling block for them and the expectation that they're smarter than everyone, that they're better than everyone, that they're always right, because that's what they see mom and dad and what they hear mom and dad talk about all the time. And we have to go, oh my goodness, is there a decision that needs to be made? No, there's really not at this time. Because if people matter to God, they should matter to us, and we should care more about the one that is outside of the pen that's lost instead of criticizing, judging, talking bad about them, gossiping, all those different things that really don't amount to a decision that needs to be made. The only decision maybe you should make in that instance, if you're powerless to change anything by making a decision, is you making the decision to pray. Amen? Like, what if instead of us sitting around talking negatively about people, especially people in the church, what, what if we just took the stance of just praying for them? And we just said, let's commit this to prayer because we obviously care about these people or either we're just wanting to satisfy our flesh by talking negatively. I think that we need to take the stance of praying for them if there is something we're powerless to do or a responsibility that we don't have because our care for them should outweigh our trying to see who's the greatest. Oh, I'm the greatest because I'm in the pen. Jesus said, no, you're not. That's a hard pill to swallow, but it's true. Matthew 18, let's pick back up where we left off in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Stop right there. If we would do that right there, man, what a wonderful world this would be. It says, if your brother sins against you, go to him between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained a brother. Didn't say go to Facebook first, go to your circle of friends first, go to your text first. No, it said go to your brother first. So here's the deal. Make the right first move, okay? There's a wrong first move and a right first move when you're offended. There's always a choice. When you get offended, your response is critical. If you're going to make a right decision or you're going to make a wrong decision, you're going to make a first move regardless, but you've got to make the right first move. And in verse 15, Jesus says the right first move is to go to the one who offended you. Oftentimes, what's our, right, what, what's our first move a lot of times? To not to? We don't do that most times. By default, we want to go and find other people who will share our offense. We, by default, we want to go, uh, you know, gather for ourselves an army of people that make us feel right, make us feel justified. And Jesus said, that's not helpful. That's not helpful. That's causing other people to stumble. That's setting up a stumbling block for other people who weren't even upset about the situation, but because you explained it all to them, now they're mad at someone they may have never met. (laughs) Jesus said, that's not helpful. That's you thinking of yourself higher than you should. That's you being more concerned about staying in the pen than being concerned about the one who may be lost. Jesus is trying to show us the value system of heaven, so we'll get this, so we'll understand this. Let's keep reading, verse 16. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is context. This is why context is so important. If we look at what Jesus is actually saying here, He's trying to explain to us how to handle when we are offended. The first half of Matthew 18 is how to deal with something when, uh, when, when you are the one being the offender. He's trying to help us understand how to not be the one leading the offense, right? He wants us to understand. Humble yourself. Don't think of yourself highly than you should. Be like this child. As a matter of fact, 
make sure that when you are tempted to sin, that you understand God values people, and this is how much he values people. He'll leave the 99 to go after the one. All right, now what do we do, Jesus, when we're offended? Okay, if you're offended, if your brother offends you, go to him between you and him alone. If it doesn't work out, if he doesn't listen to you, don't give up on the relationship. Take someone to go with you to help them to understand. Maybe that would be helpful to do this again. And if they still don't listen, then go to church leadership. Ask your pastor. Ask someone who is in a spiritual leadership position that you trust to go with you to be able to help work this out or mediate this deal. And then he says, if that doesn't work, if they're still not listening after three times, he didn't say blacklist them. He didn't say ostracize them. He says, treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector. I had to think about this one for a while. <clears throat> treat them like a Gentile and tax collector. That does not give you permission to treat them bad because Jesus never told his disciples to treat tax collectors or Gentiles poorly. You still have to interact with the tax man once a year. Right? It doesn't mean you're necessarily excited about it. But I'm still going to interact with this person. They still had to interact with Gentiles because they still did business with people day to day, with people who were not Jewish citizens, with people that lived among them, but they weren't acting like their brother. They didn't not have relationship with them. They still treated them respectfully. They just didn't choose to regularly associate with them on a regular basis. Didn't mean they treated them bad. Jesus did not give us permission to go out and treat people poorly. He said, treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. Interact with them when you have to, and have a good attitude about it and guard your heart. So it doesn't mean blacklist them, ostracize them, talk bad about them. Well, that gives me the green light to go gossip about them after I done tried to do A, B, and C. I did all three steps. Jesus still didn't work, so they're going to get my wrath. Nope. He said, just treat them like you would a Gentile tax collector. Yeah, there's distance there. There's an obvious distance. But there's still people, and God still loves them. Amen, someone? So I think that this is really important for us to understand also Another interesting part, as soon as Jesus gets done talking about treat them like a Gentile or tax collector, he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. That's a powerful statement because Jesus is saying that in the context of forgiveness and reconciliation. So he's saying that if you bind something here on earth, you make a decision to hold on to something, or you make a decision to let something go here on earth, you're also doing that in the eyes of God. Because if it's bound on earth, then you're, you're also making that commitment. It's bound in heaven. And if you forgive that person and you let that thing go that you need to let go of, then also it's forgiven in heaven. It's not just a thing between you and that person. It's something that's actually a supernatural thing where that happens in heaven as well. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. That's the context of that scripture is in the context of forgiveness and reconciliation. And then the other thing he says that we use a lot sometimes in church circles, is the scripture of where there's two or three gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. He uses that in the context of forgiveness, in the context of reconciliation. The ministry of Christ was one of reconciliation, where he was taking all the old things and making them new, where the things that were once dead were now being brought back to life. And Jesus told his disciples that when you agree on something, when you're able to work through a problem and you're able to work through something, Jesus is right there in the middle of it. Because where there's two or three people that have had differences, but now they've gathered in His name, Jesus is right there in the middle of it. And if you bind it on earth, it's bound in heaven. If you loose it on earth, it's loosed in heaven. What a powerful thing when we read the Word of God in context. When we see that Jesus was explaining to us the power of agreement, the power of agreeing that we're going to forgive each other, the power of agreeing that we're going to walk together in unity and harmony, the power of being able to forgive one another and rebuild and reconcile a relationship that was once torn apart because of wounds. Jesus said, when you do that, I'm right in the middle of all that because that's me at work in the hearts of those people. What a powerful thing when we see that. We have to make the right move. We have to make that right first move. And Jesus talked here about how to confront, how to confront, how to, how to deal with this stuff. But listen, folks, not everything is worth confronting. Sometimes we get really excited about Matthew 18 and we want to go confront every little thing. 
Because maybe you get really offended. And let me tell you this, when you're already offended, warning, warning, you're extra sensitive to being more offended. Or as I like to call it, re-offended. If you're already offended, you probably have some sort of tension between you and other people. And when that tension exists, those people could do things that they didn't mean to do to bring you further pain, but you interpret it as further pain because you already have a woundedness and tension in that relationship. And therefore, that person can almost do no right in your eyes. It even comes down to silly things like, I didn't like the way they said hi to me this morning. They didn't seem very enthusiastic about greeting me. They gave me more of a Ross, hi, instead of a, oh, hey, how you doing? Oh, it's so good to see you. I'm excited to see you. They just gave me a hi. And we could interpret that all kinds of different ways if we're already offended. We've all done this. I've done this. You've done this. We began to overanalyze, and we began to pick it apart. Well, what they mean by hi? What they mean when they said it that way? Oh, you know what? I bet you they're having marriage problems. Oh, you know what? I bet you they're having money problems. I bet you that's why they said hi that way. Oh, you know, their kids were acting up the other day. You know what? I bet you they're having problems at home with them kids. I bet those kids aren't doing very good at school. Did you see the way they were dressed? Doesn't even look like the parents care about them. We began to theorize just because someone said hi to us the wrong way. That's the work of the devil. That's the work of the enemy, whispering lies in people's ears that we believe because we want to be right, and we're going, who's the greatest? And we're asking Jesus the wrong question, and we're losing our compassion for other people because we're offended. We're losing our compassion and care for the one lost sheep that may be out of the fold because we're feeling like we're good, and we want to know who's the best. And Jesus is saying, you're missing it. Humble yourself. Be like this child. You're going to be tempted don't be a stumbling block for other people. Listen, I care about people, and I want to give you a pathway to reconciliation, but not everything is worth confronting. There's some things we need to put on our big boy pants, our big girl pants, and we need to learn how to suck it up, buttercup. Now, there are some things worth confronting, and when there are things worth confronting, you need to do that. You need to confront the things that need to be confronted. But you know what? Love confronts, but you know what else love does? It covers. Love also covers. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. So love will cover. In other words, I may not confront on this. So how do I know whether I should confront or whether I should cover? How do I know how to do that? Well, when considering confrontation, ask yourself the following questions. Hang on. Let's back that up. First step, consider confrontation. (laughs) Is this something worth confronting over? Consider confrontation, all right? We have to consider this, not just jump right into it. Because we're offended, and oh, pastor talked about Matthew 18, I'm going to go confront some people. Ready to go confront. I'm locked and loaded. That may not be the best action, and that's definitely not what Pastor Derek was trying to teach you. Consider confrontation. Ask yourself the following questions. Number one, does this person love me and genuinely care about me? Ask yourself that question. Does this person love me and genuinely care about me? The reason you need to ask this question is because if I know someone loves me, I'm saying, yeah, maybe it's not like lovey-dovey love me, but they love me enough that I don't perceive them as a person that's trying to see me fail. They're not someone who's trying to hurt me intentionally, and they don't have a pattern of trying to really hurt me intentionally. So they may be hurting you, That doesn't mean they don't love you. It may mean they're unaware of how they're coming across. It may mean they're not aware of how their actions or inactions are being interpreted by you because they don't know where you're at and they don't don't understand how you're receiving all of this. And you could be living all of these emotions and all these thoughts and rehashing and rehearsing all these things either by yourself or with a group of friends. And next thing you know, you're causing a bunch of problems for yourself and the other person has no idea all this is going on in your mind. They have no idea. And if you brought it to them, they go, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? I had no idea. Or maybe they are aware, and they just don't know what to do about it, but they didn't mean to hurt you like they did. Do they love you, and do they genuinely care about you? In other words, do you feel like these people are for you? They're not trying to intentionally harm you. 
That's the first thing you need to ask yourself. Does this person love me and genuinely care about me? The second thing is after spending time praying about this, evaluating my part in the offense and sleeping on it, does it continue to bother me? Ooh, this is a good one. I think we need to spend time praying when we're offended. And I don't know if that's a night, two nights, a week, I don't know. But just ask God, take it to God and say, God, let me sleep on this. Because there have been some times where my wife and I have been upset at each other about stuff that when we went to sleep, we woke up the next morning and we're like, that was really dumb. Especially if I woke up at 5 a.m. and didn't go to bed till 11.30, 12 o'clock, and then at 11.30 my wife asked me a question and I just go off the deep end with it. And she's like, whoa, maybe we need to go to sleep. And then when she says that, I get upset about that. What, are you saying I need to sleep now? <laughs> you just said you were tired and you wanted to go to bed. Oh, I know, but you're saying I got an attitude? Well, no, I'm just saying... And then you wake up the next morning, you're like, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, my gosh. I just got really drunk on myself. <laughs> and I make bad decisions, right? The Bible says to be sober-minded. And when we get drunk, we get drunk on ourselves sometimes, and we make bad decisions. We understand that in the natural. It's also the same relationally and emotionally and spiritually. We'll make bad decisions when we focus all on ourselves. So I need to pray about this thing. Spend some time. Take a night off from it. Just try to get some sleep. And then after praying about it, I need to evaluate my part in it. Ooh, that's a hard one to do. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. <laughs> Woo! I need to look in the mirror, Shimon, and I need to ask myself if I need to make a change. Because maybe... Just maybe I had a hand in this deal. Maybe I did. Maybe I had a part to play in this thing. Well, maybe I didn't communicate good. or Maybe my expectations weren't clearly communicated. You know, maybe I could have done a better job listening. And we evaluate our hand in the offense that we've taken. I'll tell you, that's a great thing to do, and it's a very mature step to take. Not always just pointing fingers at the other person who's offended you. If you just point fingers at them, that's you thinking of yourself more highly than you should. So we need to pray about this. We need to evaluate our part and sleep on it. And then after doing that, if it's still bothering me, maybe it's something I need to confront. It's probably something I need to confront. If I'm still waking up thinking about it. But sometimes this stuff will stay alive longer than it should because we put our mouth on it. And when we start talking, our words are like fuel to the fire. I had a pastor tell me one time, and I've never forgotten this. He said, Derek, he said, in relationships, we always carry around two buckets. One is filled with water. One is fueled, uh, it's filled with fuel, with gasoline. He said, we always have to evaluate which bucket do we use in which scenario. Sometimes we use the water because there's too much fire. Fire's getting out of control in that relationship. Sometimes we need to start a fire because there's no passion in the relationship, and so we carry the gasoline. Which one do we use in this certain scenario? And he said, that's something we always have to evaluate. So we need to ask ourselves, is this something that continues to bother uh, me and do I need to confront it? Number three, will this cause tension in my relationship with this person if it's not confronted? In other words, where there's, where, will there still be ongoing tension when, if this doesn't get talked about? If this is something that we choose to ignore? And maybe you choose to ignore it or not confront it because you're just not a confrontational type of person and you're very passive, and you're being very bashful, and, but will it make things awkward? In other words, when you see them at church, are you going to go, oh, crud, it's so-and-so, and you just put, put your head down, you just kind of walk, so hope they don't see me? Because if it's that, then that's not healthy, especially with your church family. Amen, somebody? You see, if it's going to keep causing tension, and you're like, oh, well, I'll find out which service I go to, and I'll go to the opposite one, that's not healthy, man. That's going to hinder your growth, and it's setting a stumbling block up for you and potentially for other people, too, if you're not careful. we got to ask ourselves, if it's something that will still cause tension if I don't confront it, then we got to talk about it. We need to do Matthew 18, like Jesus said. The fourth thing, this is the fun one, do I need to work on growing thicker skin and not allow myself to be so easily offended? Ooh, what do you mean by that, Pastor? That's kind of mean. Well, no. The best way 
to grow thicker skin is to stop thinking more highly of yourself than you should. Because you are not always right. People who think they're always right will be offended more quickly and easily. If you think you're smarter, if you think you're more spiritual, or if you think you're a better person that makes better decisions than other people, you will be offended quicker and more easily because you are thinking more highly of yourself than you should. What do you need to do if that's the case? You need to repent. Repent means to turn away from that way of thinking, turn away from that sin, and do what Romans 12 says, where we are renewed in our minds. And we have to start thinking differently about ourselves and humble ourselves under God's hand and ask Him to help us see people like He sees people, to love people like He loves people, to help you walk in freedom from pride and self-righteousness. Because as long as you keep justifying, as long as you keep comparing yourself, as long as you keep doing these things, man, let me tell you, the more that you feel like you're the smartest person in the room or you think you're a better person than someone else, you're being one of those 99 in the fold that's not even caring about the one that's lost, and you're more concerned asking, Jesus, who's the greatest? Bah. Who's the greatest? Tell me. Scratch my head right behind the ear. I like it right there. Tell me. Tell me. Tickle my ears. Make me feel good about myself. Affirm me. Tell me I'm great. Tell me I'm at least better than these other people. And if you don't tell me, I'll tell myself. Or I'll tell other people how bad these other people are to lift myself up. And it's a trap, you guys. It's a trap. And it, and it makes church very unattractive to the world. It makes church very unattractive to the world. It hurts those of us who are supposed to be bearing the light of Christ and the love of God in our hearts, it hurts and impacts our witness for the gospel. Because the gospel is while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we were yet perfect, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that all have fallen short of the glory of God. You, me, everybody. And that we all need Jesus and that we all have the opportunity to receive love and mercy and forgiveness and grace. I don't care who you are, what you've done, where you've been. That's the message of the gospel. Not this comparison deal where this person has a better Google review than the other in heaven. This person has five stars, the other one has four and a half. Who's the greatest, Jesus? He said, wrong question. And, and I believe that it was Peter that asked that question. And I think Matthew was just trying to be nice when he wrote this gospel because he didn't want to pick on Peter. So he just said, there were some disciples, but we all know where it was. No, I'm kidding. The reason I say that is because in verse 21, let's keep on reading, then Peter came to him and said, well, well Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? I mean, like, I don't know, let me come up with a real spiritual number. Seven times? Because, you know, there's like sixth day of creation, then seventh day you rested. So like seventh day, I stop like forgiving people? And Jesus is like, no, Peter. I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And then Peter's trying to do the math and to confuse him so he won't complete the math equation. Jesus goes into a story, I think. It's just my assumption here. <laughs> Verse 23, Therefore, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Stop right there. Anytime in Scripture you see like the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, that type of verbiage that Jesus was using, he's basically trying to communicate this is what's important to God. This is the value system of heaven, all right? If you want to know what matters to God, this is what matters to God. The kingdom of heaven is like. You'll hear Jesus say that before he goes into some sort of uh, story that's an analogy of God's heart and what he really thinks is important. So here Jesus is going into one of those stories, we call them parables, where Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, and he could not pay it. So his master ordered him to be sold with his wife, his children, and everything he had to make payment. Now, 
I did a little bit of research on biblical currency and what the valuation of biblical currency would be worth in our modern day. 10,000 talents is a crazy amount of money, and Jesus used an extreme example to, to make an extreme point. 10,000 talents were about uh, 10, 000, uh, one talent was 10,000 what they would call denarii. And a denarii was about what you would get paid for an average day's labor. A Roman centurion uh, or, or a Roman uh, guard or something like that would make about 100 bucks a day. So that would be about $100 for one of those denarii. And it took 10,000 denarii to make one talent. Jesus said this man owed 10,000 talents or the equivalent of $60 million. So Jesus used an extreme example that really messed with the disciples. They're like, how in the world did he get to rack up that kind of debt? So you got about $60 million that he was owed here or so. And he says, since he couldn't pay, he's got to be sold, his wife, his kids, everything he had. So the servant fell on his knees and he pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, or about a thousand bucks. And he said, hey, he seized him, began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master what had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Whoa! So the principle here is to give what's been given to you. Amen? To give what's been given to you. So here you had this big, huge debt and one that was still somewhat significant, but not near as significant as what he was forgiven. Folks, we're the ones that owe the big debt. And it's funny because he thought he could pay it. He said, hey, let me try to pay this thing, okay? Let, let me try to, to, to pay it off. Let, let me keep working. I promise I'll pay you everything I own. He's like, there's no way you can pay me this money back in your lifetime. It's impossible. Just like we cannot work our way into right standing with God. We cannot pay God off for the sin that we have committed. Not in this lifetime. We can't do it. Our works, our righteousness is like filthy rags. We, we can't do it in our own strength. It's impossible. We can't make it happen. And that's what the master was trying to tell this guy. Nope, you got to give me everything. And he's like, please have mercy on me. And he gives him mercy. And then he goes out and someone owes him something. And here Jesus, this whole time in context, is talking about forgiveness. And he's talking about offense. And he's talking about wounds. He's talking about church wounds. He's talking about woundedness from your brothers, the people that are closest to you, your sisters, the people that you love and people you built relationships with. He's saying when those people get close to you, yeah, I know the wounds hurt, I get it, but don't forget what you've been forgiven. Don't forget the weight of what you've been forgiven. And don't go and try to choke out of somebody else by grabbing them around the neck. You owe me. You hurt me. You owe me. You went, you're in debt with me when you were forgiven so much says when he went to find the guy that owed him some money, he said that he was angry with him, grabbed him around the neck. And I know there's people you want to grab around the neck because you're angry with them and they hurt you and you want restitution. You want some type of justice in your own eyes. But Jesus said, you need to remember what you've been forgiven. And then Jesus taught us to pray a certain way. If you remember, he, he taught us a prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And there's a certain line in the Lord's Prayer where Jesus said to that we have been forgiven our trespasses, and so now we will do what? We will forgive those who have trespassed against us, right? He has forgiven us of so much, and now He wants us to also in turn forgive those who have hurt us, who have wounded us. 
Jesus gave this extreme example to illustrate the extreme level of forgiveness we are responsible for giving to people. This wasn't just an illustration that he was giving so we would praise God and thank him for how much he's forgiven us. He was giving us that extreme example so we would evaluate what we've been willing to forgive. Because up until that point, Peter wanted to know who's the greatest, and so did his fellow disciples, who was the greatest. And then they want to know, okay, how many times do we forgive somebody? And Jesus is like, you're not getting this. You're still missing the point here, Peter. You're missing this whole thing I'm trying to get you to understand. Stop thinking of yourself more highly than you should. Because Peter wanted to get to seven and forgive them and go, all right, you do it again, no forgiveness for you. But Jesus said, no, no, Peter, not seven times, 70 times seven, man. Don't you know what the kingdom of heaven is like? Let me tell you a story about this man that was forgiven a lot. And then he tells him, he says, if you don't get this and you can't give forgiveness, then it really shows you haven't understood what you've been given, so have you really received it? And if you haven't received it, then you're going to be right back in the situation trying to pay all your debt off. He said, you're going to be right back in that situation because you're missing it. You're not getting it. And I think that we need to understand this, that we have to give what has been given to us. So practically healing from church wounds has been these four things that I've talked to you about today. Number one, remember who's really in charge. Remember who's really in charge. It's really God. Amen? It's not us. Number two, people matter to God, so they should matter to us. Jesus went after the one, and he left the 99. Number three, we have to make the first move, and more importantly, the right first move, and that is to lead with forgiveness by going to our brother or the one who offended us alone, hopefully to win back our brother. And if you want to know how to always confront in love, always confront in love, go to the person who's offended you with the goal of reconciliation, and I promise you, you'll always confront somebody in love, always. If your goal is to get an apology out of them, you're going to be re-offended. If your goal is reconciliation, it doesn't matter if you reconcile or not, your heart has been set in the right direction to where God can use that in that person's life, whether they receive it right then or not. Because what if you go to them and they don't respond? What if you take another person and they don't respond? What if you take it to a church leadership and, and, and they mediate and it still doesn't work out? Well, you're still cordial. You interact with them when necessary. And you still love them and you still leave the door open for reconciliation when that time comes. And hopefully it does. But you don't cut them off. You don't blacklist them because people matter to God. And we're called to make the first right move. And we're called to give what has been given to us. And man, I know this seems backwards to us as Christians because it does not sound like the way that the world works, does it? This is backwards, you guys. This is so backwards, because the world says, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. I'm going to sue you. I'm going to get restitution for the pain you've caused me, and then some. I'm going to make you pay for this. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. You do something to me, when I see you fail or I see you fall or stumble, I'm going to tell the whole world about it and I'm going to celebrate your failure. That's what the world does. That is the normal pattern that the world goes down. And Jesus is giving us something completely different. He is flipping the script on this deal. The script you've been handed, the script that makes us think highly of ourselves, more highly than we should, he's flipping the script and he's saying, here's how you do it. And we're like, well, that, that, that's, not, that's not very fair. You're right, but guess what else isn't fair? The fact that we could sin against a righteous, perfect, and holy God and be forgiven and us not have to pay the penalty for our sin. That's not fair either, but that's what Jesus did for you and me. That's, that's all of those millions of dollars that that man was forgiven, that debt he couldn't pay back. That's what we've been given so freely. And then for us to want to hold such a small thing over someone's head, and I know it seems big to you. I get it. I get it. And I know there's pain attached to it and there's stories attached to it. And I know I get it, man. I get it. But I can't get away from while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I know people have done you wrong in church. I know people have done you wrong in life in general. But this is our opportunity this is our chance to work together as a people who are different but yet the same.
This is our chance to grow and glorify God. When two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, when Christians, when they learn to get along, Jesus is there in the midst. When Christians work through differences, Jesus is there. When forgiveness is given and relationships are restored, Jesus is there. And Scripture says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If you want to be free from your past, if you want to be free from the chains, if you want to be free from the junk you've been carrying around, the guilt, the shame, the anger, the animosity, the wounds, lead the way and forgive first. Don't think of yourself more highly than you should, but humble yourself like a child who is dependent upon Jesus, our authority figure that's dependent upon His way, not our way, that when your life wants to go one direction and Jesus says, nope, that's not the way you need to go, you submit because He's the authority, even though it's not what you want to do, even though it's not what, oh, you just want to feel right for a moment and just... And it, and it feels so good to try to hurt that other person or see them fail or gossip about them or speak negatively about them. Stop and say, is there a decision I need to make here? What am I responsible to do in this moment? What's my responsibility? I think my responsibility is to read through Matthew 18 and allow the Holy Spirit of God to work in our hearts so we can respond in a way that will honor God, that will bring unity in His church, and that will help us heal and ultimately will help us find freedom Amen. God, I thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to share your word with our church family. I pray that we won't just be hearers of the word, but we'll be doers of it. Help us, God, to put this stuff into action. And when we're tempted, because we are going to be tempted, and we might be tempted even now to hold on to the past, to hold on to anger, to hold on to bitterness, I pray you help us to find in our hearts to be able to genuinely and authentically forgive those who have wounded us, who have hurt us, and help us to not think higher of ourselves than we should so we won't be the one putting the stumbling block of offense out there that would cause others to be offended. Help us as a church to walk in unity with one another. Help us to show your goodness and your grace at work in our lives, and help us as recipients of the gospel of mercy and forgiveness to be people who can genuinely give that same type of mercy and grace and forgiveness to others for your glory, Lord where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst of them. Whatever is bound on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Help us to live this thing out, Lord. Only by your strength can we do this. Work in us your love, your compassion. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Word of Grace. For more sermons or any other information, visit WOGCC.com.